You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Clips in this presentation on China are from the PBS American Experience documentary, Nixon in China, ABC News, CBS News, and NBC News, and from short video presentations and lectures courtesy of the Nixon Foundation. Uh, when I became director of OEO, or, or was nominated to be director of OEO, Don said to me, you ought to have a conversation with the president. And this was, what, 1968? 1969, I guess. Okay. Uh, we had no relations with China at the time. I, uh, Don and I went into the Oval Office with just the three of us, uh, President Don and myself. And uh, Nixon said, uh, Frank, you're a Foreign Service officer, aren't you? And I said, yes, Mr. President. He said, well, uh, where'd you serve? And I said, mainly Africa. He said, Africa, going nowhere. The place you ought to think about is China. Uh, you go over and manage that damn place. He hated Oreo. Uh, and after two years, we'll send you to China. I walked out of the office saying, what's he talking about? We don't have relations with China. Two years later, almost to the day, Kissinger went on TV saying Richard Nixon was going to China. So I am living witness that Nixon came into office uh, thinking about uh, reestablishing relations with China. often deceiving eye of television, a foreign trip by a president of the United States looks almost effortless, as though it is all smiles and handshakes, leisurely arrival and signing ceremonies, clinking champagne glasses. The real work is done behind the scenes by the leaders themselves in their private meetings and by the men and women the leaders depend upon to get them to their meetings on time, the advance men. The requirements of television have made good advance work all the more important in politics because so much depends, for better or for worse, on how an event looks rather than what the candidate says. But there is and always has been more to advance work than pretty pictures, especially in the foreign affairs realm. Negotiations, often delicate ones, must be undertaken with the other side over the schedule which can involve anything from the length of key meetings to the location of various staff members' hotel rooms. Arrangements must be made for the care and feeding of a president's large and highly demanding contingent of traveling reporters, producers, and technicians. Vehicles, aircraft, supplies, and hundreds of medical and military support personnel have to be arranged so that everyone and everything are in place precisely when they are needed. Good foreign advance work is complicated enough with the full range of communications and other services available at our embassies. But when I announced on July 15, 1971, that I would visit the People's Republic of China, I knew that to make the arrangements for this unique visit to a mysterious land, I would need a man with very special organizational and diplomatic skills. The United States and China 
had had no direct relations for over two decades. We had no embassy there. We had no diplomatic personnel whatsoever. Despite the often unrealistic optimism in the media about the prospects for my discussions with the Chinese leaders, I knew that the distrust between us after years of hostility would not be easily overcome, and indeed that it would probably manifest itself in the early discussions between our representatives and those of the Chinese government. Our advanced man would have to be a skilled, culturally sensitive diplomat who could avoid needlessly offending the Chinese and yet ensure that our interests were always protected. He would have to be self-confident and stable enough so that the scores of other aides and technicians on the team could come to him with their problems. He would have to be supremely patient because then as now, the Chinese were justifiably known as masters of bureaucratic gamesmanship. He would have to be a man who could make the tough decisions when the right time came, who would force the issue when it had to be forced, who could speak sharply without losing his temper, who could stay cool when others got hot. Ron Walker, the head of the White House Advance Office and later director of the National Park Service, was my first and only choice. This story, assembled by Ann Collins Walker, is about the behind-scenes trips to China by Walker and his tight-knit band of colleagues and friends that made my own trip to China possible. Because of her unique role, both as observer and in a way participant, Ann Walker has written a story with equally rich political, diplomatic, human, and frequently humorous dimensions. While I was known for bringing many very able and very young men and women into the White House, some eyebrows were undoubtedly raised in both capitals when I designated a 34-year-old as head of the advance party. My decision was vindicated not only by the success of the visit, but by the seasoned judgment of Han Su, who as Chinese chief of protocol was Ron Walker's opposite number in 1972. Hansu later became ambassador to the United States. When I first arrived, he told me how impressed he was by our young advance men, and particularly by Ron Walker, whose straight-talking style must have been a shock to Chinese officials accustomed to argument by indirection. Ron Walker's work directly increased the prospects for a successful presidential visit. That is why I am so pleased that the Richard Nixon Library and Birthplace is publishing this insider account of one of modern history's last true expeditions into the unknown. This is a true story. It happened because President Richard Nixon wanted to extend his hand in friendship to 850 million people. One recaptures the sense of excitement that captured the nation in the winter of 1972 before Watergate made other White House tapes the butt of late-night television monologues. It is a story that needed to be told. So many negatives have been written about the Nixon years that the hard work, the dedication, and above all, the friendships have sometimes been overlooked. The nation knew in 1972 that President Richard Nixon had opened a new era in international relations. In hindsight, it does seem ridiculous that the United States had been isolated for so long from so many people. God bless the bravery, farsightedness, and leadership of Richard Nixon for hearing his own China call. 
Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and this episode begins our look at Nixon's game-changing trip to China in 1972. Over the next few episodes, you will hear from the, the people who made this diplomatic mission happen, the advanced men, the Chinese interpreters, the historians who've studied the moment, and even to the two men at the center, Henry Kissinger and President Richard Nixon himself. These are from documentaries and interviews recorded through the past half century. I do want to recognize one source in particular, a book I read in college that was written by Ann Collins Walker. The book's title is China Calls. It's the story of the work of the men who basically moved to China and worked with the Chinese to make this trip happen. We used the foreword read by President Nixon himself and several stories from the audiobook for the next few shows. This is an extraordinary resource and the book was published and sponsored by the Richard Nixon Foundation in the, in the early 1990s. It is still available at the Nixon Library Bookstore at store.nixonfoundation.org. And I cannot recommend this book enough to anyone who wants to learn about this extraordinary moment in world history. So now, let's step back in time to the week that changed the world. It is February 1st, 1969. So less than two weeks into the Nixon presidency, more than three years before <clears throat> the trip and the handshake you saw, uh, the, the key quote kind of in the middle part of this, this is February 1st, the president, Nixon, writing to Kissinger, his newly appointed national security advisor, I think we should give every encouragement to the attitude that this administration is exploring possibilities of rapprochement with the Chinese. This, of course, should be done privately and should be under no circumstances get into the public prints, in the media, from this direction. However, in context with your friends, you know, sort of Kissinger's academic, national security friends, he had come from Harvard, was part of that community, worked for Kennedy and Johnson before the Nixon years. Uh, in particular, in any ways you might have to get this Polish source, which is one of the channels they were reaching the Chinese through, I would continue to plant that idea of rapprochement. We're really here to kind of give you uh, a little bit of an insight into the inside story as to how all of this got started. And as Sandy clearly said, Jack Brennan, who was very, very close to President Nixon and who served as the military aide on the trip, Larry, again to remind you, was he at this point was the assistant to Bob Haldeman. Haldeman was chief of staff to President Nixon. And as Haldeman was to Nixon, Larry was to Haldeman. And then my role was that I was the uh, kind of the acting chief of protocol. I was in charge of the log logistics side of, of this trip. And it was a very historic time in our lives. Larry is going to lead off here and give you a little background as to the state of the world and the thinking when we first learned that we were going to be going to China. Larry? Thank you, Dwight. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, we had this thing called the Vietnam War. And back during that time of the Nixon administration, it dominated any policy discussion, foreign or domestic, that took place in the United States or among world powers. So you had a situation in which we were trying to solve a war, trying to create a peace, and simultaneously trying to do with a Cold War nation in Russia and a nation that basically we didn't know in China. 750 million people that were largely, at that point in time, cut off from the world. In addition to that, you had to remember that Russia and China were not particularly good friends. Indeed, there have been border squabbles back and forth. 
for them for a long time. Finally, Nixon was worried that if, in fact, we were to bomb North Vietnam, both China and Russia, most certainly Russia, would very likely come down and enter the war in a more formal way. So we had a number of tensions going on in the world at that time and a nation that was largely cut off from any kind of modern communication or information that the rest of the world was joining. When he looked at the opportunity, he saw the opportunity to counterbalance Russia and some of its influence by becoming closer to China. But it had to be very delicately handled because <coughs> China also had relations with Vietnam at that point in time, and you couldn't undo that. So we begin down this very delicate path of trying to not only end the Vietnam War, calm down Russia, but also bring China into the modern world. I'm also interested, as I said, in the individuals. And our Nixon is someone that I had a very strong view of because I grew up in the 1960s and 1970s and was very much, like a lot of Canadians, very much critical of the American involvement in Vietnam. When Nixon became president, um, felt that he was a disappointment because he promised to get the United States out of Vietnam and did not appear to be doing so. And in any case, I felt that Nixon was old. He was younger than I am now, but in those days he seemed like a throwback to another era, um, someone out of tune with, with the times. This was partly the egoism of the young when you think everyone should be just like you. And then, of course, came Watergate. And that game gave me, again, I think, a very, very um, black and white photograph in my mind of, of President Nixon. And so when I started to do this book, um, what I went through was a process of discovery. And I learned a great deal more about Nixon. And I had to, of course, throw out many of the stereotypes I had about him. I think I hadn't realized how, well, I hadn't realized how extraordinarily complicated and complex he was as a person. And I hadn't realized how intelligent. And I hadn't realized what a great foreign policy president he was, how much he knew the world, how really he'd been preparing himself ever since he was a young congressman in the 19, late, late 1940s, early 1950s, to become a president who would really make his mark, um, not just on domestic affairs, which he certainly did, but very much, I think, on foreign policy. In my view, he was really one of the best prepared presidents ever to come into office in the United States, particularly in terms of foreign policy. And so as I wrote this book, I became more and more interested in Nixon the person, and I got, I like to think, a much more nuanced and a much more complex understanding of someone who was, as I say, a very complicated character. I also was fascinated by his decision, and I think it was his decision to go to China, because I think it really did make a difference not just in the relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China, but it also made a great difference in the general balance of power and the general stability of the world. To open up a relationship between those two very large countries, the United States, the greatest military and economic power of its time, and the People's Republic of China, a country in those days with potential for power, which it hadn't yet really begun to realize, was in fact an enormously important moment. And I think without Nixon, it may well not have happened. I mean, we all look back now and we say it was bound to happen. You could not go on in a situation where those two great powers and those two great peoples didn't recognize each other, didn't talk to each other. But in fact, such situations have gone on. They have gone on between Cuba and the United States. They have gone on for much longer than the cold spell between the United States and the People's Republic of China, between the United States and Iran. And you can say there are all sorts of reasons why Iran and the United States need to talk to each other. They don't have to like each other. They don't have to see eye to eye on everything. But there are very good reasons why, in fact, they should be talking to each other. But they're not doing it. 
And it seems to me that there are moments when it takes someone to say, look, we're going to do it, and someone, that someone is prepared to put um, the necessary political capital and has to have the necessary political capital behind it. And I think the decision to have an opening to the People's Republic of China was Nixon's, and he had the political capital. And I think without him, it might not have happened. It certainly would not have happened for at least another 10 years. And I think that really does make a difference. Now, I've always argued, and, and by the time I finished my book, I, I think I, the, I changed my mind on a lot of things, but in this I think I was right, that it was Nixon's idea. Now, other people have argued that, in fact, well, there were lots of people who thought it was a good idea, a lot of people who thought it was a very bad idea, but it was really Nixon, I think, who had been thinking about it when he was out of office in the 1960s. He had been traveling a lot. He'd been talking to diplomats in places like the Philippines, in places like Hong Kong, about the need at some stage... He wasn't specific when that stage would be. At some stage, however, to bring China into the community of nations. He had this wonderful phrase that it does no one any good, including the Chinese, for China to be left in angry isolation. And, of course, I think in that he was right. He wrote that very famous article in Foreign Affairs in 1967, which was published before he had decided to run for the presidency or announced his decision, in which, again, he repeated that, that sooner or later China would have to be brought back into the community of nations. It was necessary for stability in Asia. It was necessary for the sake of the Chinese themselves, but also necessary for the relationship between China and the United States. And so I think this was something that had been brewing in his mind for some time. He'd been formulating these ideas. And I think he was also, of course, immensely concerned, as many Americans were, about how to get the United States out of Vietnam. And he thought, and I think in the end it turned out wrongly, that the key to getting the United States out of Vietnam was to get the North Vietnamese to talk seriously, to negotiate in a way seriously, in a way that they hadn't been negotiating up to that point. Then he felt the key was through Beijing that the Chinese communists would tell the North Vietnamese communists what to do and the North Vietnamese communists would do it. Now, that was a, a common assumption made in the West about the way the communist world worked, that the big communists told the little communists what to do, and, and it was like an army and everything went along. It was partly because of communist rhetoric. The communists themselves talked about a worldwide movement in which everyone played a part and everyone obeyed the, the, the dictates of, of the more powerful communists. In fact, it didn't work like that at all. And one of the fascinating things we've discovered since the end of the Cold War is the Chinese communists, like the Russian communists, were often driven absolutely to fury by the North Vietnamese, who were very stubborn, very willful, and would not do what they were told. But that, that was something Nixon and others couldn't have known at the time. And I think it was a very common assumption that if you could only get the Chinese to start leaning on the North Vietnamese communists, the North, North Vietnamese would negotiate in good faith and the United States would be able to withdraw with honor from Vietnam. And so I think Nixon had already formulated his views very, very clearly before he came into office. I don't think he knew how he was going to do it, how he was going to get in touch with the People's Republic of China and how precisely relations would be reestablished, but it was something that he very much wanted to do. Now, Mr. Henry Kissinger has argued that, in fact, it was both of their ideas, um, that he and Nixon were very much on the same wavelength on, on this, and I think the contemporary evidence just doesn't bear this out. Um, there are accounts um, in H.R. Haldeman's diaries, for example, of Kissinger coming down the White House corridor very early in 1969 saying the president wants to go to Red China. I think he's off his head. Um, Kissinger's own interests were in Europe. His training was in Europe. His preoccupation was with how to deal with the Soviet Union. And so I think initially he thought this was a distraction and perhaps a very dangerous distraction. 
In fact, however, once Kissinger realized that Nixon was very, very serious about an opening to China, then he came on board very, very quickly. And it was really the partnership between those two men that helped to make um, the opening take place. I sent a note to Dr. Kissinger indicating that among the many other projects we had on the table for the NSC staff to consider, uh, that I wanted China to be given very high priority. That's right. I recall Henry coming down from the Oval Office. Al, this fellow wants to open relations with uh, China. Kissinger says, I think he has lost uh, control of his senses. If they acted the way they talked during the Cultural Revolution, then it was not doable. I had no way of knowing uh, what we were dealing with with the Chinese. 1969, 1970, they tried a little bit of everything. Uh, again, they had no direct contact. There was no... PRC embassy in Washington. There was no American embassy in Peking then, as it was called. Um, so after two years of trying a little bit of everything, I mean, they worked, they tried to identify third countries that were friendly to each. They worked through first the Polish. The Vatican had a role at one point. Uh, the Romanians. Uh, later, we'll see a little bit more about Pakistan. Um, and so again, trying to get the di diplomacy, the formality of the communication going, that would then lead to the direct talks which were needed between Americans and Chinese. He talked about it on and off uh, all during his administration and when you're talking in quiet that he was interested, but I didn't know what was, was happening between him and Henry Kissinger. Um, and what I do know is that um, they were sending all kinds of those secret things. One of the things that always amused me was that um, one time they decided it was time to let Cho and Lai, they wanted to talk. So Kissinger, um, they decided what ambassador would have contact with the Chinese. And it was our ambassador in Warsaw. So he um, sent word to him that the next time we saw the ambassador in China to tell him to squawk up to him and say, I think it was about time we start talking. And the ambassador just couldn't believe that President Nixon would be saying anything like that. So he didn't do anything. He sent it the second time. He still didn't do anything. The third time, Kissinger sent word that either do it or come back. So he walked up to the Chinese ambassador, and um, um, the Chinese was startled. And as soon as he could, left the party. And he, uh, we learned later, um, cabled to Cho and Lai that this had happened. Cho and Lai, to me, was the the smartest diplomat of any I ever met. I thought he was really brilliant. And um, so he got that. When when Henry was making his secret trip from Pakistan to um, to Beijing, um, I was having a um, conference of editors in New Orleans uh, with Southern editors and uh, with five cabinet officers and the president. President that night, while Henry was flying, I talked about China, but there it was during cocktail hour. Nobody paid much attention. Nobody wrote anything. But the USIA, Voice of America, picked up what Nixon was saying, and sent that and sent that out. And uh, when when Kissinger arrived in Beijing, I'm told, John Lai presented the text of what Nixon had said. I urged Cecil to make some contacts uh, first, but he wouldn't do it because this was so against 
orthodoxy and in a sense so dangerous. So I brought him back and took him into the president. Ambassador Stessel, I remember, came in to uh, say goodbye. And I said to him with uh, Dr. Kissinger present, I said, you know, the next time you're at a social gathering in Warsaw, if the Chinese ambassador, your counterpart, is there, uh, I would suggest you uh, walk up and uh, uh, say hello to him. The danger was that Ambassador Stessel would approach the Mongolian, or even worse, the Vietnamese, and tell him that the President of the United States wanted to improve relations with his country. I caught this Chinese on the steps of the Palace of Culture and held him and said to him, my ambassador has a message for you. These Americans ran after us, shouting in Polish, we are from the American Embassy. The ambassador panted, I saw President Nixon in Washington. He wants to establish relations with China. We talked to a number of countries. Uh, in fact, we first talked to some communist countries like Romania, but the Chinese didn't trust communists. Uh, and we also talked to the Pakistanis. He said that I want to entrust to you something important and very sensitive. And from now on, only you and I will know about it in Pakistan. All messages would be handwritten to reduce the risk of leakage through series. No copies would be kept. Yahya Khan told the Premier he had a message from President Nixon. He wanted to send an American emissary to China. Nixon wanted America and China to become friends. Premier Zhou said, I'll consider it and reply later. During all those meetings that I personally attended, I think uh, repeatedly Mao would say, you people should know that now our major threat is from the Soviet Union. And this is why he wanted to break this ice with the U.S. Because otherwise, he said that China would face enemies on both fronts. What changed this, I think, is while, they, while Nixon and Kissinger were on that trip in 69, touring all the capitals less than a month into the presidency, they were getting intelligence reports that the Soviet Union and the Chinese were nearly at war with each other firing shots across the Usuri River. And all the people I've talked to in the intelligence report, report suggest that the points where they were firing shots between the Soviet Union and Chinese were all at points of Soviet strength, which suggests that the Soviet Union was the aggressor. And Nixon was, because when you're on international trips, you can't use the phones and places you're staying, they would return to Air Force One for secure communications. While they're on this trip to Europe, they're to, to deal with European policy to get briefings on how tense is the situation becoming in the Soviet Union and China. It's my belief that it was during this time period that Nixon realized there was an opportunity here, a strategic opportunity to divide China and the Soviet Union, that they were not this communist monolith that all presidents thought they were, that there could be different kinds of communists that could disagree with each other on things. And so in the first term, I would argue 
that this what was meant to be a very strong policy toward Europe. Nixon and Kissinger had stronger preparation on Europe than any other part of the world. That was their language background, their travel background, their professional background, their policy background. And because of this opportunity, it, in the first term, it shifted to China and the Soviet Union. They seized that opportunity. April 28, uh, 1971, uh, Nixon's strategy starts to emerge. And you hear it on this, this brief recording. Uh, his strategy is two summits. He wants a summit with the Soviets, and he wants a summit with the Russian, uh, the Chinese, in that order, because he saw the Soviets as being the immediate concern. He saw the Chinese as being a longer-term concern for American foreign policy, and he hoped that each could help apply pressure on the North Vietnamese, either through direct pressure or through diplomatic isolation to end the Vietnam War. And so that was the strategy he had pursued. Now, this is April of 71. Uh, some of you have heard the term ping-pong diplomacy. And earlier this month, the American ping-pong team, or table tennis team, had been in Tokyo for the international uh, tournaments. And while they were there, the, the American team, primarily teenagers, school age, I mean, a couple of people who were a little older, but these were more or less kids who would call them. Um, they received an invitation in Tokyo to visit, an invitation by Premier Joan Lai to visit the PRC and ultimately to have an audience with them. And this is unheard of. Um, and there are other tapes we could show you. There's one in particular that I recall where Kissinger comes in to the Oval Office and um, he says something like to the president, just the two of them in the Oval Office, Mr. President, you'll never believe what Joe and Lai just said to the ping pong team. He said, your visit here begins an entire, entirely new era in relations between our countries. And Nixon says, he said what to a ping pong team? And you can imagine. So, so, so it shows even Nixon and Kissinger I think, to a degree, being a little caught off guard. That it's clear to me the Chinese wanted this very badly, too, and not just the Americans. The cautious rapprochement had begun a year earlier, in April 1971, when the Chinese suddenly invited an American ping-pong team competing at a tournament in Japan to visit Beijing and allowed a handful of American reporters to cover the trip. Among them, NBC's longtime Asia correspondent, John Rich. It's been an incredible afternoon. Chinese cheering Americans, clapping hands, Americans and Chinese holding hands. A remarkable display of warmth and goodwill. I knew that was, when the U.S. ping pong team was invited in, I knew that was a big change and that was an important story. I realized it was a big, big move on their part that they wanted to improve relations with the, with the U.S. Nowadays, I guess foreign leaders do it by text message or something. But back then, I mean, it takes five days to get a message to China through the Pakistanis. It takes, then they, they wait several days to think about it and respond. It takes a minimum of seven days to get it back to the U.S. And we're talking sort of two weeks almost to have just a basic exchange of messages between the two. And so you see in this next clip that I'll play how inefficient the system was. There had to be a better way, and the two sides needed to talk directly without a third party, also to maintain secrecy. Fewer people who knew about it could talk about it. Now on the China, we're going exactly around the time. Yes, because now, the Chinese will come back. They should be back. They'll be back within 10 days to two weeks. I think so. China delivered the message. He delivered the message on May 19th. It took five days. I've now got a good channel. But I told his ambassador to send it by parts. Didn't want it on the Pakistan wire. 
I've now set up a wire to Karachi for our ambassador, which goes only through Mora. Nobody knows it, and it's got a special code which only Egg knows, so even Mora can't read it. And, uh, which only, and so now we can deliver messages in 24 hours. It took five days to get there, then it took, then Yaya was in Lahore, so he didn't deliver until the 19th. So they've only had it for seven days. And my guess is that they'll reply the first week of June. And think they'll reply then? Almost certainly, yes. You have a lot of things in there about a presidential visit and all We offered them a presidential visit. We told them I'd be authorized to arrange the visit of a public ambassador. Uh, if it was thought useful, it's hedged a little bit. And in addition to a presidential visit. Yeah, in addition to a presidential visit. For them, Mr. President, after all, they are revolutionaries, but you think of this peasant, former peasant Mao, the Great March, and then the President of the United States comes to Peking at the end of his life. That's... Well, that's why it's smart. What we are praying for, basically, is the Chinese summit. That's why I want to be. That is the big play. Now, that's only, but that's half of all. The other part of the play is to do something about this war. That's the other half of it. And with that, I think these guys in 54, they needed peace, and they said it'll be not that. They need peace now. It's got to affect the North. It's the one advantage of a public emissary. Now, let me say, before I get there, say the war has to be pretty well settled. But I guess we, I guess we have to say, no, we can't come there until we have some idea that there must be, the, the fact must be known in the United States to the war, so I can't come to China before that. They're so scared of their own, that they are hell of a lot better off having you visit next May or April and keeping it hanging and daring the Russians to attack them with a presidential visit of the That's what I think they want. I do not believe they want to not. So this really began a, a key turning point in Nixon's strategy to get to China. He always thought he was going to have a summit with the Soviets first, um, but the Chinese showed more interest than the Soviets. And so the priorities for Nixon reverse. He sees the opportunity to first go to China and then secondly to have uh, the Moscow summit. And that became the priority that, that actually happened in 1972. That was never part of the plan. The plan was always, Nixon always thought he was going to have a, it would be harder to go to China. Too much to talk about, too much to work out before he could go. He thought the Soviet summit would be much easier to come together. As you can see, he kind of was able to learn as he went along, we've got to change strategies here. And China becomes the first priority for the president. Now, the big issue that's been raised a couple times already in these, in these, um, these clips is uh, what will the Russian reaction be when they realize they've been moved to second place, second priority? And so Nixon and Kissinger spend a lot of time uh, guessing uh, how far could they go? I mean, could they start a war with us? You know, could they cause trouble in the Middle East? Could they cause trouble in Berlin, which has always been a problem during the Cold War? Um, and so the, the next clip, the next one is about what will the Russians think about all this? And then the one after that is, what do our allies think about all this? So, you know, that once you get it going, um, now you have a problem. What's everyone else's reaction going to be to this? And so the, ne the, the next conversation here on July 1st, 1971, is not just any other day, 
Um, it's in the morning of July 1st, 1971. Kissinger leaves that afternoon to be the secret emissary uh, to China. You said that now that we can go visit China with, as far as Russia. If the Russians do not give us a summit, we could go in December or yeah. late November or summer yeah. to China. Yeah. 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 Don't you think, Al? Yes, sir. And we could tell the Russians, and Anatole can go home and say, you crazy sons of bitches, you yeah. screwed it up. Right. And uh, actually, technically, if we don't get it by the sevens, it doesn't make any difference what they decide. Yeah. Al can't get it to me fast enough. Yeah. The other point, of course, is this. If we don't get it there, the sevens... On the other hand, you've got to figure, you figure that the Russians then, if you go to China, there is a chance that they'll blow the No, they won't blow the Russians. They will blow that. But they'll blow us off. And the risk we done with the Russians. On the other hand, this person has problems from that. Well, if they blow salt, they could blow salt, they could uh, they could jack up the Middle East, and they could start yeah. raising hell in the Caribbean. That's correct. Now, of course, we can go hard right. They won't do the right because they want to get along with the Germans. Yeah. That's right. And in fact, our major problem in Berlin now is we're coming up with, I know we'll never get credit for it, but we're coming up with a really superb agreement on that. Yeah. Uh, which is actually an improvement. Yeah, they still sing it. Yeah, but, you know, they are, the Russians are making so many concessions now that it's getting tough to... Uh, I've got, uh, I've, I've got Russia held until July 20th. Yeah. So in sum, they decide, who cares about the Russians? Um, they could stir up some problems, but China's more important, and that's what will dominate the news. And the, the, the issue of scheduling the second summit with the Soviets, if, they, if it's going to be canceled, let them cancel it. Let, them be in the, let, let us have sort of a moral victory. Let them be the ones to, to stop the diplomacy on, our, on, on the, the second summit. I brought it to him in the Lincoln sitting room. Mr. President, he says, this is the most important message that a president has received since World War II and the ending of World War II. Henry read it to me with his voice trembling. I did tell him that I thought this was a diplomatic re revolution. I went down and I found some old brandy that somebody had given me right after the inauguration. It had never been opened. Kovacier, one of the better Kovacier's, there are many, you know. The message carried Chairman Mao's personal invitation to President Nixon to visit China. But first, an American envoy would be dispatched to Beijing to make the delicate arrangements. Uh, there could be only one person to handle some of these major issues, and where secrecy was involved, I mean secret negotiations, it had to be handled. Raise expectations and have all this drama and then have it go down the tubes would have been unfortunate. But more specifically, if word got out in advance, first in the United States, those who were fiercely against any rapprochement with the Chinese and the pro-Taiwan lobby would be, you know, uh, invading the White House and pressuring us either to call it off or constraining what we could do. Uh, the thing that I remember, and the first time I even knew that we were doing anything like this, and I saw the CIA, CIA briefing papers every morning, so this was something that was known by only about five or six people, was Henry wandered into my uh, office at the Henry White who? House. What? Henry who? Henry Kissinger. I'm sorry. I wandered in. He was the <coughs> security advisor to the president. 
uh, on, I think, a Thursday or Friday afternoon going off on the next round of peace negotiations, peace talks that we were supposed to have in Vietnam. And we talked for a while because Haldeman was on the phone and then he, he uh, sort of said, I may be doing a little additional traveling. That's all he said, went in and saw Bob. And after he was done, he came out of the chief of staff's office and I was called in by Haldeman. And that's when he told me for the first time, Henry's not just going to Vietnam, uh, he's going to China. Clay was absolutely right when he implied that to call this uh, ping pong diplomacy is a misnomer. It was at least a five-year structured uh, reasons to get to the point where finally there was an, an implied invitation for a high-level representative to come to China to make arrangements for a trip of the president. <clears throat> this culminated, this buildup culminated with the world's most famous upset stomach. When, uh, <laughs> when Dr. Kissinger was in Pakistan in a meeting with President Yahya Khan, who had been one of the two contacts with the People's Republic of China, uh, he conveniently got uh, first exhausted, uh, is what we reported to the press. He was exhausted and had to go to, like, their Camp David to rest, resting for a day. They had such a, a plan going on. They had planned a dinner, and then uh, the dinner was only planned so that they could cancel it. And then they had a big motorcade going up. And in fact, Henry was just hundreds of yards away from the presidential palace in a little cottage. Whisked away at 3 o'clock in the morning to a Pakistani plane, airplane, flown into China, no one knew. There's no communication for two days. This is, and the press thought, well, he has a, he's sick. I, I allegedly fell ill, and he allegedly urged me to go to the mountain station he had for recuperation. We announced that he was exhausted by this long trip and by the heat, enervating heat of the subcontinent, and needed a couple of days rest and would be going to this beautiful hill station, 9,000 feet high, which is called Nathia Gali, about two hours' drive from Islamabad. Finally, I woke up my son, who had been using the car the evening before, and uh, he had them under his pillow. And he fished them out and said, what's the matter? His mother knocked well, are you fetching a doctor or something? What's the crisis? So I said, he looked at his watch, said, 2.30, good Lord. So I said, no, we are just going to Nathya Gali for rest for a few days. He woke up wide awake and they said, at 2.30 in the morning? He said, I never understand your generation. up to the airplane, one engine of which was already turning over, and the other one was just waiting to be turned on. We dashed up the, the gangway into the forward entrance to this aircraft, and there were four Chinese waiting for us. When I first saw Kissinger, I wasn't sure who it was. He was wearing a big black hat. He had dark glasses on and a big black raincoat. We found four Chinese in Mao suit sitting there, whom Joan Lai had sent to escort me into China, but we didn't know this. I saw a look of horror on the face of the man who was a security guard for Dr. Kishiger, because when he saw the Chinese sitting in the plane, he nearly had a fit. He thought they were being kidnapped. So off we went into the darkness uncharted waters. We hadn't had any contact with the Chinese for over two decades. 
We had been at war in Korea. We had constant uh, propaganda exchanges and mutual isolation. Uh, and so there was a chance that this trip would not be successful, obviously. We hadn't been gone altogether too long when Wang Hai-Rung came to me and says, um, uh, Dr. Kissinger would like to speak to you. She didn't speak English, so she said, So I popped up and went back, and there was Kissinger in splendid isolation. But he said to me, John, do you have any shirts? One of the problems on these high-level trips is little things like, do you have enough shirts along? Well, anyway, I put, I think, two or three shirts aside, put them in a separate bag, carefully. And in the morning at 4 a.m., Kissinger, like any normal human being, doesn't remember. And so he went there with no shirt except the one that was on his back. I said, Henry, you are going to negotiate with these tough Chinese. And before you even sit down and talk with them, you've lost your shirt. And then Kissinger was going absolutely crazy. And there's that famous photograph that was taken of him and Joe and Lai shaking hands. And whenever you, whenever one saw Henry about that, he said, oh, I'm wearing that shirt. You know? And he was very, very unhappy. And on top of everything else was made in Taiwan and had a label uh, uh, made in Taiwan. And I used to joke that when I said to the Chinese on that trip that Taiwan was close to me, I really meant it. I drafted this opening statement for Kissinger, which said the United States did not support two Chinas, nor one China, one Taiwan, nor an independent Taiwan. And I sat there on the edge of my chair waiting for him to repeat this little bit about Taiwan, and finally he did. At which point, Joe and Lai said, good, these discussions may now proceed. Zhou Enlai's reply was about what you might have expected it to be. No deal. U.S. troops must go. You must just get out. Let the Vietnamese solve their own problems. But at the same time, the very fact that he was meeting with us could be seen by the Vietnamese as an act of treachery. The Chinese wanted this brief announcement, in effect, to say... President Nixon was dying to go to China, and we're gracious enough to let him come visit us. The United States wanted to say China would like to have Nixon come. Nixon's delighted to accept their invitation. And uh, on July 11th, he came out of, after two days of, of discussions with primarily Zhou Enlai, Premier Zhou Enlai, he came back into Pakistan, and the Eureka means he, he sent a cable. We had no communications. He sent a cable to his assistant, which was General Haig, we're all down here in St. Clemente at the time. General Haig said, I got a message from, a cable from Dr. Kissinger. And the president said, what did it say? It said, Eureka, which meant everything's set. You're welcome. Come. I should say that this is an anxious time. Why anxious? Because, in effect, we could have, it, what could have been an incredible embarrassment. Mao Zedong could have said that the American president chooses to come here, but those running dogs are not allowed, uh, you know. It could have been just an embarrassment, terrible embarrassment. Well, there was, also, you, you there was also a worry that, you know, suppose they decided to hold Henry Kissinger hostage. And they, they, there were a lot of suggestions. <laughs> that would have helped in some they, they, have, they, they should send more Secret Service with him. And finally, somebody, you know, who's smart enough said, look, the Chinese want to do anything while Henry's there. They're going to do it. We don't have enough Secret Service to worry about it. So he went in with a very small party and just a couple of aides. He returned. And if you'll recall, he returned to San Clemente. The president had, over the weekend, flown out to San Clemente. Uh, to the Western White House, 
And Henry Kissinger returned there, immediately went in uh, to see the president. Frankly, nobody, hardly anybody on the White House staff knew anything except that Henry was getting back from Vietnam. Um, there was some negotiation and some uh, consultation. And then the president, without saying why, said that he requested time on NBC to address the nation on a very important matter. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. White House correspondent Tom Gerald in Los Angeles, California. Good evening. President Nixon tonight has flown from his home at San Clemente to a television studio here in Los Angeles to deliver what the White House terms a major statement. The president this week has been conferring extensively with Secretary of State William Rogers and Mr. Nixon's national security advisor Henry Kissinger, leading to speculation that tonight's subject will be in the area of foreign policy. Here now is the President of the United States with what the White House terms a major statement. Good evening. I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and its 750 million people. That is why I have undertaken initiatives in several areas to open the door for more normal relations between our two countries. In pursuance of that goal, I sent Dr. Kissinger, my assistant for national security affairs, to Peking during his recent world tour for the purpose of having talks with Premier Cho Enlai. The announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. Premier Cho Enlai and Dr. Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's Assistant for National Security Affairs, held talks in Peking from July 9 to 11, 1971. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Cho Enlai 
on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. The meeting between the leaders of China and the United States is to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries and also to exchange views on questions of concern to the two sides. In anticipation of the inevitable speculation which will follow this announcement, I want to put our policy in the clearest possible context. Our action in seeking a new relationship with the People's Republic of China will not be at the expense of our old friends. It is not directed against any other nation. We seek friendly relations with all nations. Any nation can be our friend without being any other nation's enemy. I have taken this action because of my profound conviction that all nations will gain from a reduction of tensions and a better relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China. It is in this spirit that I will undertake what I deeply hope will become a journey for peace. Peace not just for our generation, but for future generations on this earth we share together. Thank you and good night. The world was surprised and the press were flabbergasted, so much so that one of the all-knowing uh, <clears throat> hosts stared into the cameras like a frightened deer and had nothing to say, just complete, complete shock. This is the next day's edition of the New York Times, and although it tells about, look at the apartheid Dwight has circled, the action is not expensive. Old friends, that referred, of course, to Taiwan. All of the negotiations through our secret channels, for almost always, the Chinese response was, we may uh, have communications to speak about Taiwan, nothing else. And then finally, when they agreed to speak with something, else, some, something other than Taiwan, Taiwan being primary, then things progressed. So what's interesting is that no one knew that this was going to happen. Larry being an exception, two or three other people. The announcement was made in Burbank, California, and then the question became, how in the world are we going to do this? What is involved? We did not know anything about going to China. Uh, we had to try to figure this out. So there were players at the White House, the president in charge of everything. It's a very important point. The president was the architect of this trip. Kissinger, he was part of the construction group. He was the builder. But there were several people involved, intricately involved in the trip. Henry and Haig and the, NBC, uh, the NSC contributors worked on the substance. Bob Haldeman was in charge of all the arrangements, and that's who I reported, reported to. And then we ended up with two men uh, in uh, the PRC, Ron Walker, and then our dear friend Tim Elborn, who is deceased, but was a Trojan. He was a fraternity brother of mine and Sandy's here at USC. And so now, now that's happening, the scheduling of the summit. <clears throat> Now, how do the American allies react, especially 
uh, the non-communist allies in Asia who would be very concerned, especially Taiwan, Japan, Korea, the nations that contributed troops to Vietnam, um, how would they react when they see their closest ally, the United States, is now all of a sudden making friends with the PRC, who many of the non-communist allies suspected were providing support for North Vietnam and during the Vietnamese War. And so it's a very delicate thing to handle, um, to make the different stakeholders comfortable with this really kind of earth-shaking thing that's about to happen once the, uh, uh, the summit is set up. complicated relationship is something that Nixon understood back then. But I think what drove him to do the things that you see in these audio, listen to audio files and see in some of these records, I think Nixon believed it was better to try to live together than to try to live apart, a long run. That maybe their interests of the two nations were not coincided immediately, but in the long run. Nixon said a number of times in the tapes, in five years, our primary concern is the Soviet Union. In 25 years, our concern should be the PRC. Better to make peace and become friends now while we can than to wait in 25 years when we're so divided that it's impossible you know, to be friends.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.